This is Rainmaker FM, the digital marketing podcast network. It's built on the Rainmaker platform, which empowers you to build your own digital marketing and sales platform. Start your free 14-day trial at rainmakerplatform.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Rainmaker. I am Brian Clark, your host and the founder and CEO of Copyblogger Media. We have a really cool episode today because I have a really cool co-host, as has been our practice lately. Instead of having to listen to me ramble on monologue style, uh, we get smart people to join us and talk about smart things. So today... Uh, We're talking about subscription revenue models, and last week, we kind of set the stage for the perfect online business model, which would be a combination of recurring revenue and digital products and services, and we're going to continue on that theme today with a guy who wrote the book on the topic of uh, the power of subscription models in general, and today we're going to focus on three models in the digital realm that are extremely powerful uh, for any entrepreneur or business person looking to create a recurring revenue stream. So today's guest is John Warlow. Uh, He is the author of The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. John, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So... I know you currently run a successful subscription-based business, and I know that you had one prior to that, um, which is pretty good credibility, I would guess, for the book that you wrote. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you got started as an entrepreneur and kind of take us through to how we got here to today. Yeah, sure. So I used to run a subscription business. I sold it to a Fortune 500 company in 2008. I wrote a book called Built to Sell back in 2011. And the idea was how do you structure a business and make it more sellable? And one of the themes in the book was the importance of recurring revenue as it drives up the value of your business. And so with this book, I really wanted to do a deep dive into that idea of recurring revenue and how important it is to you know, the overall value of your company. We talked last week. Um, I have had the either privilege or misfortune of having two months of conversation with uh, private equity investors. And it's gotten to the point where all they want to hear about is recurring revenue. And, and that's, to me, a remarkable shift given that most of the world still operates on a transactional basis. Well, let me give you an example because my day job, you mentioned my current business, it's called Value Builder System where we estimate and and help business owners improve the value of their company. It's a subscription business. But we have now 14,000 users that have gone through and, and filled out our questionnaire. And what we see is that the average business on that questionnaire gets an offer that's around one times top line revenue. But if you've got recurring revenue... Uh, you can get as much as six times top line revenue. It's a it's a it's a it's a huge impact on the value of your business. Why? Because acquirers want to know well what's this business going to do once the owner hits the beach. They want to know that the the revenue is going to continue to to go on. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we've seen scenarios where that gets up to ten x revenue, which is amazing. But if it's the right company in the right market uh, with recurring revenue. Uh, you can get into kind of a strategic acquisition bidding war if uh, you have more than one suitor, which, of course, is ideal. So 
but yeah, still five to six times revenue compared to one or two. Huge difference in uh, the the capacity of that beach house that you end up in. <laughs> the size and square footage, exactly. Yeah. All right. So as promised, uh, I want to talk about a few different models here. When we're we're, t- we're speaking specifically about digital products and services, and you know, with the advent of things like Netflix and other uh, recurring models. Uh, based on purely now digital distribution. Of course, Netflix at one point did ship, or I guess they still do, but who does that anymore? The the actual DVDs, um, which was a smart play. They were in it for the long term. Uh, but I think I recall an interview with their CEO that says, if you look at the brand itself of Netflix, it was always going to end up pure digital. It's a very good point. And, and the logistics of managing shipping stuff in a subscription business, I mean, you just have to ask the guys at Dollar Shave Club how difficult that is to actually ship a physical product on subscription. So they're moving in the right direction, making it digital. No, I know one of your other models, and we kind of joked around about it last week, not that it's not amazing and viable, but the the stuff in a box thing, I, I find this just amazing, <laughs> you know, that you have all these businesses popping up, uh, serving relatively affluent people with... You know, everything from a collection of cosmetics to, a, you know, an outfit for a guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, BarkBox is one of my favorite. This is the one for dog parents where they send the dog parent, the dog owner, but they call them parents, you know, a collection of dog treats. Um, what's really interesting about those models, O'Brien, is that the, the, the key to making them work is, is less the subscription and more the, the, the sales on the back of the subscription. So at Birchbox, as an example, $10 a month and you get a box full of cosmetic samples, mostly women who, who subscribe. They uh, Half of their, their subscribers have now bought a full-size version on their website. And so the real kind of you know opportunity that a lot of people are chasing is the back-end sales on the, on the website, on the back of the subscription. The subscription in and of itself is a bit of a Trojan horse. Yeah, and that's something we've been preaching forever, whether you call it a gateway product or acquiring a customer. It's the continued sales, uh, whether in a recurring model or uh, on a uh, one-off transactional model. But yeah, I did note that about Birchbox, and I thought it was brilliant. You know, it's kind of old school direct marketing, but brought forward into the digital. I mean, you know, the, the world we live in today where um, you have to be much more trustworthy and transparent in, in your marketing, and yet it, it's still the same principle. When you acquire a customer and you take care of them, you're going to get the opportunity for more revenue. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about our first model today. And this one, I think, is the you know, the first one that pops into many people's minds when they think of uh, the combination of digital and uh, recurring revenue. And that's the tried and true membership website model, probably pioneered by uh, people in the porn industry in the 90s, (laughs) but uh, much more legitimate these days. Why don't you walk us through the model in your mind? And also, if you've got some some kind of off-kilter examples, because everyone knows that marketers training people in marketing and, you know, these very kind of meta business models are are using the membership model. But there's really just a broad range of people uh, who are benefiting from the model. You bet. So to define it, the membership model is where you take 
your expertise, what you know better than 99.9% of the world and put it behind a paywall and charge people a subscription fee to access that. So the uh, a couple of good examples that are a little bit out of the uh, ordinary would be uh, dancestudioowner.com. So these guys, uh, if you own a dance studio, they'll give you the templates and tools and insight on how to make that a profitable business. They were acquired recently by Revolution Dance, who are one of the fastest growing uh, dance apparel companies uh, because it was a, a gateway product for Revolution. So that that's one example. Another maybe good example uh, would be Mark over at the Wood Whisperer. So at the Wood Whisperer, they teach hobby uh, wood, woodworkers, uh, you know, how to build cabinets. And uh, again, very deep passion for a lot of people. And uh, and Mark delivers a great membership website uh, over there for for them. So the key, I think, is that you've got to find something that people are passionate about. And the, the best membership websites, I think the ones with the most longevity, are are actually helping you make money. So it's like restaurantowner.com, how to you know run a successful re- restaurant. Um, you know, um, uh, Joe Casera at Contractor Selling is helping plumbers and electricians be better sales and marketing individuals. The ones that are a bit harder to make go are are the real consumer-like uh, so, you know, everything you want to know about Italy, it's a, maybe there aren't enough people that are really f- passionate about that topic, but it's very hard to get them to break out their wallet if, if they don't see a direct line to revenue. Yeah, and I, I think you've made the point that the membership site model works when you're solving real problems, which is usually in a business or financial context, um, more or less. Uh, Of course, there are, you know, in any market where you've got, it's either passion or a true problem. Let's say uh, weight loss. Of course, there are many uh, programs that do really well there because that's a serious problem and you can at least keep the customer until they reach their goals um, and maybe even maintain beyond that. But, and the other side of it, like the woodworking thing is passion. It's got to be intense. Like you want to master whatever it is. And I think maybe that's the ingredient uh, that separates something that's going to work with that model and something that's probably not going to go over as well. Yeah. And the degree of complexity of what you're teaching and also the visual nature of what you're teaching. So, you know, if, if what you're teaching requires screen grabs and video tutorials and for people to kind of get it, they got to see it. That's the perfect sort of circumstance for a membership website, because obviously with membership websites, you can usually upload video and, and, and show people screen grabs. And, and so the, the higher degree of complexity, the, the more need they have for the information. Excellent point. Before we move on from this model, uh, you touch on this in the book, and this is something we've advocated since 2007 uh, with our teaching sales program, uh, you know, with online training specifically, multiple uh, modalities of, of content in that you provide text, you provide audio, you provide video or, or some sort of visual when it's necessary to communicate the ideas, but more or less serving all the different learning styles. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's very, very important in a membership website where you do have people that are better at watching, better at reading, et cetera. So for sure. It's also odd, and we'll talk about the psychology of selling uh, these things in a little bit, but when you transform something, say, from text into video, all of a sudden people want to pay more money for it, which <laughs> is odd, but it's a truth. So, okay. The next one uh, that I want to talk about 
is the all-you-can-eat library model. Um, and that's a, uh, an interesting uh, descriptor, but doesn't that describe what we opened with with Netflix? You bet. I mean, basically, the all-you-can-eat library model is where you take your digital content and you put it in the cloud, you put it behind a paywall, and you say, here it is. Um, it's in a library format. Uh, search for it and and use it. it. It's evergreen information. So while Netflix is always adding new content, the base of its kind of database, its library, is these thousands of titles they have access to and, and, and that you get access to in real time. So Netflix is the ultimate all-you-can-eat. You don't have to be Netflix, though, to use this. There's a, an example in the book uh, about New Masters Academy, and they, they're an interesting business. They help people learn how to how to, how to acquire a new skill in, in art. So if you want to become a, a watercolor painter or a pottery uh, maker, et cetera, you can subscribe to New Masters Academy, and I think it's 30 or 35 bucks a month, and you get access to literally hundreds of tutorials on how to do, uh, you know, learn a new discipline in in the world of art. And again, it's it's all you can eat because the library is up there, and you can pick and choose like a Chinese menu. Um, and so that's the you know the people are buying access to more content that they could ever possibly consume. Yeah, and to uh, give another example of, of something we've been talking about quite a bit lately since LinkedIn spent uh, a billion and a half, lynda.com is this model as well. Um, do you have any uh, behind-the-scenes insight on Lynda? Because I've been tracking that site for a decade, uh, but I never quite figured out what their model was for paying contributors. I don't. I mean, at New Masters Academy, for example, their model for paying contributors is 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 interesting. Uh, there's a pool of of revenue that goes in uh, that that basically gets split up between all the contributors. But most people do that on a on a number of usage basis. So the people who have popular programs are getting paid more in the payout model than those that have obscure ones. With New Masters, what they were interested in was depth of content as opposed to really just three really popular things. They wanted to be able to have lots of content. So they pay out based on number of submissions, number of tutorials you as an artist upload. Um, and that's a key point about about these models like Uber and Facebook. They don't necessarily own the content. They're providing basically a platform. At New Masters, you know, they don't hire or employ all the artists. Uh, they are hiring artists that are teaching at community colleges and so forth today and saying, hey, listen, let me come and record you for a day or two. We'll build out the tutorial and then we'll do a revenue share on the back end. Um, so that, that's how they've accumulated lots and lots of content very, very quickly because they're not buying it. They're doing rev share deals. Nice. And I, I suspect Linda did something similar. Um, so what we're talking about here with this all-you-can-eat library is massive amounts of content really beyond feasibility for a single person to create uh, or even, you know, to hire a bunch of employees or even freelancers to create. Uh, going back to Netflix, that's obviously a licensing situation. Now, of course, Netflix has gotten into original content, which I think is brilliant, but they laid the groundwork with a vast library of licensing deals. Give us some insight on how the everyday entrepreneur can use licensing in this model. 
Well, uh, you know, what you want to do is first pick a, a very small a niche where where you can kind of own it because like lynda.com and, 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 and the rest, you know, the big broad categories I think are already taken. So I think you want to pick a very small niche and as as new masters did, go find the the thoughtful contributors in that space who don't necessarily have the the same depth of knowledge uh, around digital assets. Because what you as an entrepreneur listening to this program, being part of the copy blogger community, I mean, uh, you're you're obviously knowledgeable about digital marketing, digital assets, and the, and the how to structure these. So you can bring that talent to the table and let those individuals who have a unique expertise, but not necessarily the knowledge to to sell information products uh, to uh, to mark to market. So again, the structure of the deals is typically a revenue sharing agreement where you put their content into an all you can eat library. And then on the back end, you share a portion of that revenue. And then depending on the philosophy of the site, you can share revenue based on number of downloads, uh, number of views, uh, or as new, new masters did, based on number of assets or number of you know tutorials uploaded. But uh, again, that gets back to what you're trying to achieve with your uh, with your all you can eat library. Yeah, um, just some insight, I guess. Um, in another approach, there are content producers out there. Uh, let's say you want to create uh, a membership site for freelancers and uh, you want to provide, say, uh, legal forms, checklists, documents like that. We know there's an entire market out there of sites that sell that type of product, uh, but you can also find um, a supplier where you could do a licensing deal and that becomes part of your content, which is somewhat stock and then you augment it with your original content and you've got quite a lucrative offering. So keep that in mind. Licensing can be powerful as long as you make the economics of it work. Well said. Okay, and this, let's move on to the third and this one is fascinating and I, it's tricky. Um, we've got some examples here of uh, people uh, who created subscription models with network effects that just made ridiculous amounts of money uh, coming and going. I'll let you talk about that one. Uh, but the network model, what is this? Essentially, the network model is a subscription model where the defining characteristic is the the more people subscribe in your market, uh, the more powerful the subscription becomes for everybody. And to get your head around this one, I mean, you go back to when the when the telephone was first introduced in the 1800s. You know, at the time, it, you know, when you first launched the telephone, the only people who had a telephone were like the the sheriff, <laughs> you know, the the doctor in town, maybe the post office, and so the utility of a telephone was you know, f- somewhat minimal. Uh, but as people started to buy telephones and you could call not only the sheriff, but you could also call your neighbor or your mom or your kid, it started to accelerate the benefit for everybody at, to a point where it, it, it grew like wildfire because the benefits, the, the best salespeople became the users of the system. Uh, you know, a more modern day example of that might be World of Warcraft, uh, the video game series, online video game series, where uh, you know, you're, you're gaming, uh, you can game individually, but it's way more fun if you get your friends and contacts to, to game with you. And so there's a uh, sort of acceleration or network effect that happens when the more people opt in, the better it is for everybody. Yeah, the fax machine is my favorite example. One fax machine is worthless. <laughs> Two is interesting, but 
two million is something. <laughs> and that's you're not- exactly what happened until it got replaced by digital. <laughs> My co-host, you're sounding very, uh, very old by saying that. Oh, fax like, machine. Fax machine. What's that? Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, you talked about the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've got this computer in my pocket that also makes calls, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, Touché. I mean, we think about network effects a lot these days in terms of free things that spread, such as, of course, Twitter, Facebook. You know, I mean, same concept, but you, there's no money being charged. Talk to me a little bit about WhatsApp, which uh, went with a nominal subscription fee that added up to a whole lot of money in a gigantic acquisition. Yeah, so WhatsApp is is probably the poster child for this network model where, as you know, before they were acquired by Facebook, you could subscribe to WhatsApp, and after a year of using it for free, they charged you a dollar per year subscription. And you think, what on earth do they care about a dollar? Well, the dollar helped them create the platform that would actually get rid of all the cheesy ads that were on all the competitive messaging platforms who chose to monetize their platform by advertising. And so... The guys at WhatsApp said, you know what, we're going to create a clean app, uh, no ads, but you got to pay a dollar a year. Well, they were, at the time of the acquisition, acquiring a million new users a day. A million new users a day. More pictures were being exchanged on WhatsApp than were on the entire Facebook platform. And as you know, the story ends, uh, Facebook acquires WhatsApp for... I can't remember the number off the top of my head. I think it was 18, 19 was it 18, billion. Yeah, I was going to say 18 or 19 billion dollars. At the time, WhatsApp had about 50 employees. Yeah. <laughs> That's the size of my company. I'm feeling right. a little inadequate at the moment. But uh, yeah. it's amazing because $250 million $1 subscriptions is still $250 million. Did Facebook end up killing the dollar subscription? Uh, to my knowledge, they have. They certainly said that that was part of their intent at the time. I haven't so followed. That means it's going extent. to be, you know, the original deal, Facebook is great at this, uh, is going to be killed because they're going to pollute it with ads. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be surprising. And and I haven't followed the uh, the latest implementation. Yeah, I, I, I don't use it, so I don't know. But uh, anyway, still a fascinating story. So that the network model is intriguing. I think it's the trickiest of the three that we're talking about. But it's always fodder for creativity to, to start thinking about these models. Um, and, that's, and that's what we try to do in the book, Brian, because the, the idea, you know, I say this in the, in the section, I lay out these nine models and I say, do me one favor. As you read these, don't put your feet up and say, or put your hands up and say, this would never work in my industry. My hope is that when people read them, they go with an open mind and they're saying, well, what could I steal from this guy in this industry and apply, be the first to apply to my business or my industry? And I think it, with that sort of open mind, I think you can, you can steal ideas and be the first to kind of innovate in, in a different industry. Absolutely. And that, that works almost for any business model. I love the stories of how, you know, Henry Ford created the auto assembly line by visiting a Chicago meatpacking plant, right? <laughs> it's always what the other person is doing in a non-competitive industry that sparks the most creative and innovative ideas. So I'd never heard that example. Oh, no, it's a great one. Um, there's another one about uh, the printing press was actually inspired by uh, great, the great press for creating wine. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's always the weirdest place. I always tell people, go get outside of your little world and you'll get a better idea than uh, just staying inside the box, uh, to use a cliche. Yeah, well said. Okay. 
few tips here. I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, I'm having a lot of fun because this is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> um, That's correct. Psychology of selling a subscription is a, an entire chapter in the book. Uh, you also have some very useful uh, chapters in the book about uh, the math that you have to do to make it viable. Um, so obviously people pick up the book. It's a bargain. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about this because I love how you open the chapter with uh, selling a, a recurring subscription is different than a selling a stick of deodorant, which I thought was the understatement of, <laughs> of the year, if not the decade. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about it. What are the primary considerations that you have to take into account when you're trying to get a person to say, yes, it's not only worth it for me to open my wallet, but for me to be charged on a periodic, periodic basis. Yeah, I mean, think of it as the difference between a one-night stand and a marriage. Uh, one-night stand, both consensual parties go off and have a good time for an evening, and neither party is committed to the other, and both can go their separate ways at the end of it. Whereas a marriage uh, arguably has a lot bigger benefits, a bigger value proposition for both parties over the lifetime, but it takes a bigger commitment, right? And so a subscription, I think, is akin to a marriage where you've, you know, you've got to make a case that that you've got to build trust and make a case that you're going to look out for that that uh, that person's best interest. And and unfortunately, I think we're getting a bit of subscription fatigue setting into the market where, you know, all of us look down our credit card statements now. I don't know about you, but when I look down my credit card statement, instead of seeing like two or three lumpy purchases, I see like 50, you know, 10, 20, $40 a month charges now uh, from Netflix and, uh, you know, the, the salesforce.com and all the other folks that we subscribe to in our business. So the, um, you know, the, the, the credit card statement is, 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 uh, is, is causing, I think, a bit of f subscription fatigue, which which increases, I think, the need to overcome this fatigue. Uh, one of the strategies you talk about about uh, you know the, the psychology of selling a subscription. One of the strategies I think people should think about is is thinking 10x versus 10%. Uh, nobody is going to subscribe to what you do uh, by offering a 10% discount. I was having this conversation with a dentist the other day. I was speaking and, and a dentist came up to me and said, well, how does this, you know, work in, in dentistry? Um, you know, could I, could I have people subscribe to dental cleaning? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You could. And so he's like, well, maybe I could give them, you know, five or 10% off. And I, and I stopped him. I said, like, nobody's going to subscribe um, for cleaning just to save 10%. What you've got to imagine is how do I make this value proposition 10 times better than just buying on a one-off basis? Uh, you know, at New Masters Academy, we were talking about earlier, uh, for 30 bucks a month, you can get access to a library of content, uh, which, you know, each one of those courses might be six or $800 at a community college. So there's a 10x value proposition. I think at Netflix, you could make a really strong argument that Netflix is a 10x value proposition. Uh, for 10 bucks a month, you're getting access to hundreds of thousands of titles. Um, so think 10x versus 10%. Yeah, and I think it also goes back, because you're right about uh, credit card fatigue. Now, in my business, I don't think twice about it. Right. Because the value is evident. Can I do without this and still deliver the same experience? No, I can't. OK, it's good. But on the consumer side, you know, Spotify, Netflix, you know, I'm an entertainment junkie when I have the time. So those are definitely worth it to me to have access to pretty much any, you know, any song or uh, any movie that I'm really looking for. Uh, 
But the, the more superfluous stuff, I think, is where people might get into danger with churn and, and things like that. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the tr- the churn rates of B2B software, uh, so business-to-business software where it's mission-critical, in particular industry-specific software, I mean, the churn rates are less than 1% a year. I mean, they're, they're infinitesimal, right, which drives the huge multiples you're seeing for those industry-specific MR. Uh, you know, recurring revenue businesses, whereas I think you're absolutely right. Some of the more consumer-oriented, take-or-leave, discretionary, uh, those are the ones where where you're seeing lots of very high churn rates. So, uh, again, speaking to, I think, the importance of sticking, if you can, into a business-to-business model uh, where you're going to get lower natural churn rates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, value, obviously. Uh, any language or copy tips we've got a lot of uh copywriting people who listen and uh, they'll be interested in what are some of the points that you really have to get across uh, to get people to rationalize and approve the purchase at the you know you start with the emotional response and then you got to justify it logically Right. I mean, I think like any good copywriting you've you've definitely got to uh Make a both a, a a very rational but also an emotional uh, sort of um, connection on the rational side. I think actually, ironically, Microsoft's doing a pretty good job with Office three sixty five. One of the rational value propositions is: look, um, when you subscribe, unlike when you install a set of CDs on a, on a computer, uh, you're instantly the, the moment you install them, you're susceptible to viruses. Um, unlike that situation with our software, as a subscriber, you will get instant patches and instant down loads for virus protection. So that there's that, that, that instantaneous sort of value proposition is always on. So I think words like instant access and, um, always on and, and those sorts of, uh, uh, words that imply a real time connection on demand as you need it. Um, I think are all kind of words that, that connect for sure. And, uh, and and I think the emotional side of, of it is is painting the picture of what it means to be uh, a subscriber. You know, at BarkBox, I mentioned them earlier. They've got two. Last time I checked, full time employees whose only job is to drop happiness bombs on their subscribers. And a happiness bomb is when they send a spontaneous gift to a subscriber who has had a bad situation. Usually, it's a dog owner who's at a dog who's gotten sick. And so they send a spontaneous gift. Now, why would they hire two full-time people to do that? Because that breathes a sense of, of spontaneity and romance into the relationship, which is what drives the, the, the lower term. That's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, and, and that's just, you know, in, in the post-Zappos world, I mean, delighting people is what you have to strive for, not just adequately keeping your promise. And that's a challenge, but... Uh, that's a great example. Uh, I like the Microsoft example too. We found uh, from our standpoint with the Rainmaker platform compared to WordPress, the fact that we update, uh, manage security, all of that was an amazing, more of a selling point than we originally thought at the beginning. So you just have to look where the pain is and uh, adequately communicate that. Absolutely. All right, people, I highly recommend The Automatic Customer. It is, it, it's very concrete, and yet I consider it an idea generation book, like John mentioned. You know, how do I take bits from here and bits from there and create something new? It's not creativity that comes from staring out the window. 
It's from observing what others are doing and then seeing the connection with what you're already doing. John, I'd like to thank you uh, for joining us today. And uh, if if I might be so bold, I'd love to have you back uh, as a co-host from time to time if you're interested. Yeah, I'd love to do that, Brian, anytime. Awesome. All right, everyone, take care. Uh, we will be back next week with more. Uh, as always, if you can find the time to head over to iTunes and leave a rating uh, and review for us, it, I would greatly appreciate it. It definitely helps. But in any event, uh, I will be back next week with more. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.